Because that's a fugazi. All right. That's a fugazi? How do you know it's a fugazi? You looked at it for two seconds. What, it's a fake? But, yeah, I know what a fugazi is. It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? No. Fugazi. It's a uh, fake. Yeah, fugazi, fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a... Fairy Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. We're back with the great investigative reporter Jamie Bartlett. He is returning with the amazing podcast, The Missing Crypto Queen. He and Georgia Cat, his producer and partner, um, are basically back at it again after uh, the kind of a brief liaison here. And before we get too deeply into that and that exciting news and why they returned and sort of what's on the agenda here, uh, Jamie, thanks, man, uh, so very much for coming on again. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, no worries. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, big fan, big fan. So let's, let's get right into it. You guys basically, um, I guess through the latter part of 2019, published uh, eight episodes called The Missing Crypto Queen on the one coin phenomenon uh, that had then seemed to kind of end um, in a flurry of disappearances. But as far as I knew, no major journalist had picked it up. It was just kind of a curiosity, a weird kind of multi-level marketing. Everybody sort of expected it to be a cult. No one, I mean, they, they figured it was scammy, but no one really delved into it. And then you guys get into it and you discover billions and billions and billions of dollars, uh, pounds or whatever, uh, being sloshed all over the world. Uh, she, of course, disappears. And that becomes a story in and of itself. And the podcast is sort of you guys building the plane as you're flying it. Uh, super intriguing stuff. Great, great, great production values. Um, it's a, a mystery serial. So each time you turn in, you tune in, you're... you're expecting new news and you you always you know deliver on those goods and on it went for eight episodes and it just seemed like you were getting closer and closer and closer and then it sort of ended with uh, kind of like geez you know we're, we're kind of at a dead end here right yeah it was such a strange way to end it i mean the thing is about the bbc and the way these things work they you kind of get commissioned to do a set number of episodes and then when you get to the end you've run out of episodes but it felt like the story hadn't finished but we'd obviously been building up and working towards having these eight episodes like you said we're, we were building the planes we were flying it so even each week as each episode came out we're still working on them up until about five minutes before they go live because the story's changing so quickly and so all through most of 2019, actually, even though the podcast came out in um, September until early November, we were essentially trying to do two things. Find this woman, Dr. Ruja Ignatova, the founder of OneCoin, who disappeared in October 2017, and sort of unravel, understand, explain how she managed to pull off, I mean, certainly the biggest Ponzi scam since Bernie Madoff. Easily. Yeah. Um, and like you say, it was, uh, it was, it was actually a, a very, very clever combination between a multi-level marketing scam, uh, a kind of sort of a pyramid scam, if you like, a Ponzi scam and a fake cryptocurrency all layered into one beautifully executed uh, fraud. And so 
it was far bigger than we thought. And I think it was far bigger than most people thought. And that's because people don't pay attention to the world of multi-level marketing. They think it's just a silly little, you know, mm-hmm. side gig that people do, but it's actually an enormous industry. So yeah, we get to the end of episode eight. We actually, I'll be honest with you, when we started making this, we, n- we never thought we'd get anywhere near this woman. I mean, she disappears with hundreds of millions of dollars but I think by the end, we'd actually got a little bit closer than we thought. So we're, we're, we're kind of stuck at the end of episode eight thinking, oh, wow, we, we really want to carry this on, but we've run out of episodes. So people didn't realize, um, and we, I haven't really said so much about this, but we did not stop working on it. We were working on it. The minute that last episode came out in November, we carried on working. That was we my next question. Stop once. Yeah. We just didn't we couldn't tell anybody that we were like silent under the radar trying to sneak around figuring things out and big news maybe we'll get to was that a huge court case in court case in the u.s came up the week after the episode right. came out um <laughs> about money laundering one coin money so uh, the story kind of just took another twist if you like yeah and that was my uh, my next question was how could you go I mean, because you really you begin publishing episodes in late 2019, but you'd you'd actually started investigating much earlier than that, and all this work and and, and it ends at eight. And I thought, wow, that takes a lot of discipline. But just kind of knowing your your investigative background, I, it just couldn't have been satisfying. And as you say, uh, you know, there's only so many episodes to go, and maybe the BBC was like, oh, that's nice for now, and we'll just kind of move on from there. But <laughs> was- right right after you guys end uh, the story blows up again and uh, it, it uh, takes uh, takes place in the southern district in new york um there's some uh, some some major revelations so i i guess what we kind of have to understand if, because you you go on this crazy investigative trip but you also enter the cryptocurrency space and i think if if memory serves here you sort of confessed to me in our first interview that you were surprised how few of the crypto people actually knew of OneCoin, right? And so yeah. when people like me embraced you and some others and uh, Peter McCormick uh, later, I always like to tease him that uh, I got you first, um, that uh, <laughs> he has a slightly bigger audience than mine. Um, and, uh, you know, when, when they found you, I, I think... Were you weirded out that, like, shouldn't you crypto people know about this stuff? No, it's funny, actually, because I consider myself half a crypto person because in 2014, I published a book about the dark net. Um, So I was writing about Bitcoin and studying Bitcoin in 2013. I mean, I did a a TED talk about how you buy drugs on the dark net using Bitcoin. Um, So I, I... the reason Georgia Cat first approached me when, like, and said, I've heard about this crazy story, do you want to, like, take a look with me, was because she thought, well, she sort of read the stuff I'd done and, and knew I knew something about cryptocurrencies. And she was like, oh, you, you must know about this. And I'd never heard of OneCoin either. And, and I thought I knew all of them. And it, I think it's because it did, it operated, the, the scam did not target crypto specialists. It was really going after multi-level marketing people, network marketers, ordinary people who'd maybe read one news article about Bitcoin's price going stratospheric and thinking, I want a piece of the action. And, and, and 
everyone wants to buy when the price of a coin is like 0.1 in the hope that it you know you can make those life-changing gains and so it it completely passed me by and when i actually started looking into one coin i mean i know the bbc always wanted to find a story about cryptocurrency that was how do i i don't want to sort of insult your audience but without <laughs> it being too technical and boring you know that could appeal to ordinary yeah. people so they might have a chance of understanding it a little bit better and so when you get a big story about a cryptocurrency but through it it has this m sort of mis mystery of a missing person it like becomes a, a just such an obvious story to try to tell in a lot of detail as well so I was, I, I, I feel like what happened, and I think maybe I mentioned this before, is that the crypto people, the crypto press generally, there were a few exceptions. There were a few exceptions. I think Cointelegraph did write something about it at one point. Um, they looked at OneCoin and thought, this is just a pyramid Ponzi scam. It's so obvious to us, the crypto specialists. We're not, we don't even need to bother with this. No right. one's going to fall for this. But then the mainstream press looked at it and thought, oh, it's a cryptocurrency. That's a job for the crypto specialists to look at. And one coin kind of cleverly fell between the two. I was mostly worried, actually, that people like you and Peter McCormack and others would, would think that I was trying to undermine the whole of cryptocurrency and all the coins by essentially saying, look, people are getting ripped off. It's all a scam. And after all, the podcast is called The Missing Crypto Queen, right. not The Missing Ponzi Queen or The Missing Pyramid Queen. So I was nervous, actually, that some people in the crypto world would, would hate on me for sort of looking, you know, if it, if it looked like I was trying to mm. undermine the whole endeavor. But I guess you guys, you know, fortunately, you're, you're more open-minded than I gave you credit for <laughs> because <laughs> people didn't do that. People were actually really open to it and really interested in the story and kind of, I, I hope, thought to themselves, maybe we can take a little bit of responsibility over this because this is kind of happening on our turf. and ordinary people are getting ripped off and maybe put off cryptocurrencies but by someone claiming to have one and sort of benefiting from the huge increase in bitcoin's price to scam ordinary people and maybe we have a responsibility to try to call this out sooner and harder yeah and uh, that's that's part of the the harder core ethos for sure is um is you know highlighting scams and it's it's part of um i i am super interested in them uh, I find them to be uh, uh, much harder in, in the days now, the, the, the contemporary sort of modern phenomenon of decentralized finance. I, I find them much harder to ferret out than before. Whereas one coin, yeah. I could immediately dismiss it. Now I, it's hard. It's which is a different discussion um, altogether. And I, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just it's so hard. To it, I think from yeah. Yeah, go on. Sorry. I was, well, I was going to say, it's, it's, I think it's coming at it from the perspective of a complete newcomer who does not understand any of the jargon, but wants to sort of wants to get involved somehow. That's the one coin victim right there. And I think as soon as if, if the crypto community has aspirations for this really going mainstream, then, then that's I mean, that's what's going to happen, isn't it? The mainstream joins and doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, I remember I called it your 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 mom standard. Um, in the uh, <laughs> yeah, earlier yeah. Uh, podcasts uh, last year where you went and spoke to her about it, which I thought was brilliant. It was a, a perfect segue into the, 
into the subject matter and it lowers everybody's anxiety about having to know everything all the time. That's it. That's it. That was the whole point. We, I, my, the idea of that was like, I kind of knew my mum wouldn't understand my definition of a blockchain and I worked really hard on it. But the point was actually that she didn't and that it didn't really matter. You know, like, so you as the listener didn't feel like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of people, a lot of people who've listened to that podcast have said, oh, I didn't listen to it for ages because I thought it was about cryptocurrency and I don't, you know, that's not for me. I don't get it. I don't know how right. it works. I'm not interested. And then they listen to it and like, oh, I didn't, oh, I kind of think I understand how it works a bit more now. And it wasn't really about that at all, was it? It was just about how you run a scam. <laughs> and it, and, and it's, it's brilliant because it, you know, the uh, sort of the cliche that I always talk about is the lie leading to the greater truth. So you investigate the scam and now you can tell at least a little bit on the surface what the difference is. And I think that could lead uh, at least some savvy listeners into the world of cryptocurrency because there are yeah. uh, legit projects. But, you know, the, you sort of answered it already, but what, what was the reaction um, to the podcast just generally? Because I know uh, as you say, there was some um, apprehension at, at the technical name of it and so forth. But you guys actually were nominated for, for an award, right? Yeah, nominated for an award, nominated for the, um, what was it, True Crime Podcast of the No, outrageously, and I'm putting that down to the fact that we're still going now. So, you know, <laughs> we'll have to win it this year when we finally crack the mystery. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, 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 there's probably a lot of other factors behind it as well, but I feel like we were, we were lucky to find the story. We were lucky to have a BBC were willing to give us so many episodes to work on this and they've given us more episodes to work on it because it's such a crazy story that it deserved more than... You can't tell this story in, like an, in, a, in an 800-word article Mm-mm. for a newspaper because it's just got so many weird bits to it. I mean, mafia, corruption, money laundering, failure of the regulators, psychology, cults. It's really got so much. And yeah, it was also the other big thing that happened when it came out was that we were sort of inundated with offers from TV companies who just wanted to turn it into yeah, documentaries. Yeah, it lends itself perfectly. Yeah. 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 And you know, at the moment, like, it feels like... All the, just, just the wars between the streaming platforms are all looking for interesting stories all the time, aren't they now? Of what's going to be our next big series. So it's got so many cool, interesting and sad elements to it that make, does make it a bit Hollywood-esque, I think. Oh, man. And the, uh, the latest wrinkle of a, of a love triangle just, you know, I mean, you could just take this. This is for sure a book, which uh, I'm sure is in the world. I'm working on. I'm exactly. working on a book. I'm yeah, on it, it has right, to be. Exactly, yeah. You know, there's just, there's just too much to well, it. And it's going to so be... So you, a... you mentioned the love triangle. Yeah. You mentioned the love triangle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought the story couldn't get any weirder. And then <laughs> Mark Scott, an American lawyer, is, uh, accused, well, is arrested and put on trial for laundering $400 million of Rouge's stolen one-coin money in a, you mentioned before, Southern District of New York in November 2019. And lo and behold, who turns up as the government's star witness for the prosecution? It's Rouge Ignatifer's younger brother, Konstantin Ignatov, who'd been arrested six months earlier. And he just proceeds to dish out these most... I mean, if it wasn't said under oath, I'm not sure I'd even believe what he was saying. It was incredible. 
like real inner workings of how it worked. Rouge was having an affair with one of her other money launderers and she spied on him because she didn't believe that he was going to leave his wife. And while she was spying on him, she found out that he'd been arrested by the FBI and was working for the FBI to get her. I mean, it was literally like, what? <laughs> this and, story and is you, even crazier. And that leads to, because I, I'd heard her speak um, and kind of calling back to, to the earlier part of our discussion is that, I had never heard of her before you brought her to me. So I had actually, I'm such a, a rube that I had actually interviewed temptation. I'd been with all separately on different subjects and I'd never heard of ah. one. Coin. So when you brought one coin to us and, and you became part of, you know, sort of entered my radar. Um, I took up the task of listening to her talk and, you know, watching some of the online uh, stuff on her. I'd never heard her speak candidly. And so the love triangle in episode nine, where you guys picked back up that was published uh, earlier in, in August. So you, okay, let me, let me, cause I'm jumping around here. What, what gets the BBC to re up and go? I mean, obviously the popularity is there. It, it appeals to a yeah. wide swath yeah. of people. It's original, all that good stuff. But what finally gets them to go? Yeah, we need more of this. Well, it was really that the story hadn't finished. And like we knew episode eight, we thought we'd got close. We knew there were still lots of threads that we hadn't pursued. Like there were, we, it just felt like unfinished business. And I was, I was nervous because I was thinking, oh, you know, sometimes it's better to leave it, you know, and let, leave mm -hmm. people wanting more and not do a second season or not do more episodes. And, but, um, but we carried on working on it anyway. Like we, we weren't totally sure, but the BBC said, look, if you want to do more, you know, you, we'll, we'll be able to make some more. And then, and then this court case comes up, the Mark Scott court case, and there's just so many explosive details, so many new leads, so many new names. I mean, she had a former top spy from Luxembourg called Frank Schneider, who was running her sort of security and reputation. Kind of a fixer, yeah, something like a fixer. I mean, according to Constantine, he just was doing all sorts of things sort of to, just to help the business flow. And then you've got um, oh, another, I mean, absolutely critical component. And thank God for the FBI, to be honest. I mean, everyone complains about them, but they're the only people that actually seriously prosecute and go after this kind of international crime. And... They had been able to uh, locate a lot of where her money ended up. So like hundreds, where hundreds of millions of dollars had ended up. That was really and suddenly, mm -hmm. yeah, that just opens up a whole new set of leads, people to look into, clues. We got more stuff about her background and her behavior and where she'd been. And so it was just like, how can we leave it now? We, there's suddenly we've got this all this new information, new characters that we hadn't really had hardly heard of. So we're like, no, we got we got to carry on. But then, of course, lockdown kicked in, and so right. suddenly I we forgot we all about got to that, do it all right? remotely. Yeah, we got to do it remotely, and we're like, oh man, we could have been in back in Bulgaria doing this <laughs> and that. And the people listening to it, I think they enjoyed the fact that me and Georgia were out and about all the time, trying to fight, you know, actually on the ground. And that unfortunately, we just couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. Because, and I was getting inundated with messages from people being like, what's going on? You're not, you're just leaving it. There's just been this huge court case with the brother. So, uh, and I just had to stay quiet because I wanted it to be a big surprise. That yeah, yeah, I was, I, them. If, you know, and you know, I follow you on Twitter, so... I would see, hey, it looks like there might be a, 
you know, a documentary or a movie deal in the works. Looks like we're writing a book. I was like, yeah, but hey, Jamie, look at all this other stuff that's going on. So that that's interesting. And I figured there's no way you could you could let this uh, let this lie. But something else happens uh, before I get into Gilbert and the love triangle, which I'll ask you flat out if if that was something you just get. Man, we we got to keep going with this. Um, but uh, the FCA, the I guess how do I explain it for for Yanks, it's it's sort of the the SEC, right? Exactly. The, the 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 UK equivalent of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they had issued a relatively early warning: "Hey, watch out for one coin." Blah blah blah. That that disappears, right? I mean, did that yeah. shock you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, it didn't. It didn't. It's really weird, actually, because yeah, September two thousand sixteen, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK issues a warning about one coin, saying you're advising people against investing. This is a sort of a, they have reasons to believe this. I can't remember the exact wording, so I don't want to be quoted mm-hmm. on it in case I get it slightly wrong. But essentially, a kind of quite sort of generic warning about about sort of fearing that one coin may be a fraudulent scheme. Uh, and that stays up from September 2016 until a, around the 1st of August 2017. And it's really helpful for critics who can point at it and say, listen, guys, uh, the well-respected FCA is saying this is basically a scam. So this was a really useful thing to have up. Now, the problem problem for the FCA is they technically don't regulate cryptocurrencies. It falls outside of their, they call it a regulatory perimeter. And in August 2017, they take the notice down again. And I mean, from the research that we did, we believe, I mean, we believe it was following some sort of legal, uh, sort of legal pressure put on them by Rouge's mm-hmm. lawyers, who were basically saying, and funnily enough, they may have been right to argue it on a technical point. Listen, you you don't have the you don't have the legal responsibility over cryptocurrency, so why are you issuing a warning? And I think what may have happened is that the FCA concluded that legally they were on shaky grounds and they took the warning down. And the problem, of course, was that once you put a warning up, you can't really take it down again if you know it's a scam, because mm. um, obviously that was then taken by the OneCoin promoters as proof vindication that OneCoin was now considered to be a legitimate investment by the FCA. So they go back out and start promoting hard, saying the FCA now says we're okay, you know. So off we go again. And uh, that's, ter- I mean, that's just terrible. Terrible. It just, it's, it's one of those frustrating things where you don't really quite know exactly who to blame because maybe everyone's kind of following the rules, but what it shows is that rules don't really work. Not with something like this and not with the rules that we have. Yeah, I've been dying to ask you uh, sort of the implications of that idea because I think most, you know, good modern progressive folks believe, you know, look, we have regulators for a reason. And I, the, one of the first things I thought of when, um, when the wire card scandal and some other things happened mm. where the FCA took a little bit more active uh, role in that mm. and mentioned uh, taking down crypto cards and, uh, sorry, uh, crypto mm. debit cards and so forth. Um, I thought, well, is there, does, do people who support these regulatory bodies, do they ever stop? And I, I'm asking, I guess, personally, to think like these things are kind of a moral hazard in and of themselves because it, it, it sort of causes what would maybe otherwise be the this kind of, a, I guess, go-to capitalist argument, I guess. Um, but like 
people to be aware and do more due diligence and so on. It's sort of lazily, you know, they, this, this guy, Ken Levine can then do the sin of omission, mm. you know, and sort of yeah. move yeah. off of that. Do you, do you get what I'm sort of pointing to? Like, is this, is, is maybe the problem just having an FCA rather than, um, a bunch of people investigating it. Or? Well, yeah, I guess. I guess at, at the end, if you if, if you're gonna have it, and it's gonna, yeah, it's got to be smart and got to be mobile and got to be a bit more sophisticated and well resourced. Now, I don't know exactly. You know, I don't know. I mean, I know different different people have different positions positions on this, and I, and I and I, I kind of steer clear away from the bigger moral arguments mm-hmm. about different forms of regulation all, all i can say is to me it was a fa- it was a failure on the part of the regulator because they you know one, once once you once you start issuing notices unless you're incredibly naive about it you've got to realize that what's going to happen uh, as soon as you take one down is that it's just going to be a sort of pr exercise for the for the scammers and the problem is that the regulators generally are, are pretty slow, in my experience, with this kind of thing. They're not very proactive, and maybe people who don't like regulators think that's a good thing. But they're pretty slow, and they're not very, uh, they're not very proactive. And the result is they're often there, and this probably speaks to your moral hazard. They're there, and they're not saying anything, and they're not doing anything. And so then the promoters of scams will say, well, look, there's a regulator, and they're not doing anything about us. So we're obviously legitimate. So I definitely think there is an argument that you make that like, if you're going to have a regulator there that's not doing anything, in some ways it can be worse because the regulation is used by the scammers to say, well, they're, not, they're leaving us alone, so they obviously consider us to be fine. Mm. And I, I don't know. It would, I'd probably have to think a bit harder and try to do some more maths about it in terms of like, what's the overall, <laughs> the overall net loss or gain from this. But there's definitely a load of cases where the existence of a useless regulator is is worse than not having one for that reason. Yeah, that just that feeds my my <laughs> sensibility. So that was a very selfish question. Uh, but <laughs> fantastic answer, by the way. Um, so let, I, I, the point of the podcast, that's because that's because uh-huh. that's what you thought already. So no wonder right, you exactly. thought it was a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you agree with me, it's always a good answer. CoinFugazi proudly uses Read.Cash to help distribute our content. Head out to Read.Cash forward slash at CoinFugazi, all one word, and check out how we're incorporating the platform. Then, also check out how people and businesses from all over the world are using crypto as a currency, rather than just speculating, to demonstrate the power of peer-to-peer electronic cash. Tip, comment, blog, join communities, and so much more. That's R-E-A-D dot C-A-S-H. Read dot cash. It's kind of getting to the point of, of having you on the podcast, which is uh, to celebrate uh, you both um, um, re-entering the space and BBC Sounds and uh, picking the story back up again. But I don't want to give too much away because I really want people to get out and start listening to it. Uh, you've given a very nice summary of all the, uh, the issues involved. Uh, but let's uh, let's end here on a character that you've brought uh, into the uh, the realm here, named Gilbert Armenta, and mm. the possible connections. Now, when he jumps out at you, did did you? Because I, I I don't really remember him in the earlier episodes. When he jumps out at you, does does he? 
you know, instantly, you know, wet your whistle and you're just like, man, I've, I've got to keep going on this uh, because he's got some, some rather deep connections to law enforcement possibly. And uh, uh, tangentially the Russians, which if uh, listeners don't know, they're gangsters and then they are Russian gangsters. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know about his personal connections to uh, to, to to Russian Russian gangsters, um, but he is. Yeah, I mean he's he is a really interesting character, and I'll be honest with you, someone I think probably whose name just flitted across the radar in the first eight series. I just probably saw it somewhere. Didn't he's one of a hundred names that's involved. Uh, didn't look into him too much. But knew he was involved in um, somehow in the movement of money, of Rouge's money. But that was it, really. And it wasn't until <laughs> the Mark Scott court case in New York that we really got to hear from this guy and just understood just how important he was. I mean, probably from around, I think it was mid-2015, he, he's working with Rouge, moving money around, and at some point, Rouge, who's already married at this point, seems to fall in love with Gilbert Armenta and they start having an affair. And that affair evidently hots up quite significantly, such that it looks like by the summer of 2017, they're kind of talking seriously about leaving their respective wives. I mean, he lives in Florida. He's from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Right. And he seems to have been involved in a lot of different companies through the years. He's a bit older than Rouge. He's in his mid-50s, sort of international financier. And he, um, he starts talking about leaving his wife and she's going to leave her husband. And, but apparently, I mean, according to Constantin, the brother of Rouge, uh, Rouge is not 100% sure that, she, that Gilbert Armenta is going to go through with all this. So she basically... Again, according to Constantine, asks her former spy employee, Frank Schneider, to, um, to spy on Gilbert Armenta. And again, I've got to keep saying according to Constantine because Frank right, right. Schneider denies this. Rougier asks Frank to uh, put a some kind of a wall listening device. I mean, Frank Schneider buys an apartment beneath... Gilbert Armenta's in Florida, drills a hole through the ceiling, places a listening device in, and then starts listening to the conversations between Gilbert and his wife so Rouge can work out whether he's serious about leaving her. And that is how she then discovers or is then given a clue that he's in trouble with the FBI and possibly even working for the FBI which um, he actually was. He was indeed working for the FBI. And so we, we, what we were able to get from the court case was some of the phone calls between Gilbert and Rouge, which the FBI had been recording and which were played in the court case of Mark Scott. And, you know, she's going crazy. I'm like, well, you are an asshole, Gilbert. Mm-hmm. You know, this, that and the other. And also evidently worried about whether the FBI is onto her too, saying, you've got to be careful about your communication. You have no idea. This is really serious. And indeed, on the 12th of October 2017, Rouge is indicted by a grand jury in New York. It's a sealed indictment. So she shouldn't really know about it. Mm-hmm. But she disappears two weeks later. So... 
there's still so much in this story that we don't know and we're still trying to work out. But that stuff, I actually spoke to somebody who was in the courtroom when that little tale about Gilbert Armenta's uh, 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 flat being bugged was revealed. And uh, that person told me that it was the most remarkable thing they'd ever heard in 20 years of working in a court. <laughs> I mean, it is like a Hollywood movie, though, isn't it? It really Drilling is. holes through ceilings and listening in because of extramarital affairs and learning that the FBI is... I mean, it's, it's, I mean it, this is what I'm saying. I, I could hardly believe it myself. Yeah, and it's, uh, it, it becomes the uh, sort of the, the, the template, the, the, the subtext under which uh, episode nine, Follow the Money of the Missing Crypto Queen, is published, and it's super, super hot episode. You know, if you're, if you're jonesing for more of the Missing Crypto Queen and Jamie Barlett in Georgia, Cat's work... Episode 9 does not disappoint. Uh, they pick it right back up. They give you just brief little insight into what OneCoin and Ruzha uh, are, were, uh, however you want to phrase the, uh, the verbs there, and then sort of the ongoing uh, drama and these little nuggets that seem to fall out of the sky, and it takes a Jamie Bartlett to put them all together. And I, I really don't think, you know, out, outside of maybe law enforcement, I, in, and, you know, you have uh, quite a bit more leeway, uh, in terms of um, being able to uh, put everything together and talk to people uh, without warrants and so on. I, I don't think there's really anybody that knows more about OneCoin and uh, all that. Uh, all that. It, it really is, if not, it's certainly the biggest crypto-related scam, uh, Bitcoin-related scam, for lack of a better phrase, uh, in history. Uh, and one of the biggest uh, financial scams in uh, yeah, in I mean, I mean, there's, I've got to say that there's a there's a lot of great citizen journalists out there, great loads of great critics who've been temptation. You mentioned others as well that have been on the case, and I mean, I, they've been studying it for longer than me. But I mean, I've been I've been looking at this now nonstop for pretty much six to ten hours a day every day now for eighteen months or two years. Um, but I think there's people out there that have been doing it for even more than that because the story becomes such an obsession. I mean, everyone I speak to about it becomes slightly obsessed by it. And it's interesting that you say crypto-related scam because that's where it's that's where it's tricky because it's like it's, she 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 clearly was using the language, the hype, mm -hmm. the confusion, uh, the stratospheric price rises of cryptocurrency to run to run the scam but that was just like the sprinkling on top of what was really a ponzi scheme so it's a very clever way i mean it's a brilliant idea in a way to combine a sort of ponzi scheme where your fake product is a fake cryptocurrency whose price you can manipulate and so you draw in all of the hype and all the rest of it but i know a lot of crypto people probably do still object to the idea that it's a crypto scam at all because they'll say it's nothing to do with cryptocurrency. I mean, there was no technology behind it. No blockchain. So I don't still quite know how to define it myself, to be honest. I, I think it's a nice, loose metaphor. Um, and I yeah. think it does incorporate all of that in. But you're right to, to make that distinction. And I know a lot of crypto people uh, will, uh, will appreciate it. Um, well, anyway, I, I promised uh, to only keep him to 30 minutes and I've gone well over that. How do people follow your work? Where can they keep up with the Mr. Crypto Queen? Uh, because again, we're, we're right back into one of these 
rare podcasts where you're listening to Jamie and Georgia figure out the mystery as you're listening. So it's, it's not like this yeah. is all put to bed and he knows how this ends. Uh, they're no. still doing it. So this is original stuff. Anyway, how, how do people when I get follow off the your phone, When I get off the phone, I'm literally getting straight onto my laptop and I'm <laughs> carrying on working on it. I'm not even joking. So yeah, in about a minute, I'll be back on the case. And it really is. We still don't know how it's going to end, but we've, we're, we're broken cover now, so we can be sort of open. Yes, we're still on it. We're not going to stop. You can see, I mean, I think, I think The Missing Crypto is basically available on all the normal places people get their podcasts from. I mean, BBC Sounds always want me to say BBC Sounds, but I think it's all over the place. And, um, and, I, and I'm on Twitter at Jamie J. Barlett. So I will be posting the odd little update, the odd picture, the odd snippet, maybe even put up a little, uh, some video footage of one of Rouge's great talks so people can actually see what she was like in action as well. So yeah, check it out there too. Very nice. It is, uh, it is always a pleasure to talk with you and uh, I'm, I'm an admirer of the work, but the work really does speak for itself. Uh, the podcast you can appreciate it on about a thousand different levels, but especially if you're into cryptocurrencies and uh, the this, that sort of weird 2017 boom that we often talk about and mm. uh, how we're still uh, still dealing with its implications. Well, Thanks so much, man. Another one from the sounds of it. Say it again. And heading towards a bit of another boom from the sounds yeah. of, I mean, from how I read the sort of the language online at the moment, which is interesting because it's, you know, in the wake of another big, another massive bull run, I mean, there will be scammers watching closely thinking, here we go, let's jump on the bandwagon and see if we can rip some people off. And the, the toughest, you know, and I've already said this, but the, the toughest aspect of this particular round is going to be when the experts have trouble distinguishing yeah. um, between them because in the DeFi world, which again is a completely different uh, conversation, um, there is debate about whether someone who quote unquote scams money or funds away is scamming or actually you know, taking advantage of the technology that is there. So um, anyway, tons of implications. We could literally talk about this for hours and hours. Uh, Thank you so much again for coming on, Uh, Jamie. I really appreciate it. And best of luck to you, man. Thank you. I'll be back on again for the third and final time when we finally crack the mystery. How about that? Oh, man, I can't wait. Uh, (laughs) Thanks so much again, brother. All right. See you uh, later. Cheers. Cheers.